Insert Disc 2. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Insert Disc 2. Today, I have a very special guest with me, uh, Amiga Bill from the Guru Meditation. Hey, Bill. What's up, Boat? Thanks so much for having me on. It's a huge honor to be here. I'm a big fan of your guys, and it's it's so cool to be on your show. Thank you so much. All no problem. We're glad to have you. Hey, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do, uh, what what you do with the Amiga and the Amiga scene? Wow. Well, <laughs> I try I try and do a lot with the Amiga scene because I love it, and I've been doing it since 1987 when I got my my first Amiga 500, and I guess it's hard because I do a lot of things with Amiga. I'll break it down to three parts. Like priority number one for me is my user group, not my user group, our user group. We have something called uh, the Westchester Amiga User Group. Uh, we're a user group that meets about 35 minutes north of New York City on the first Thursday of every month. We're still still going strong. The group started, and I was I wasn't there at the very beginning, but started around 1987. I took it over in 1989. And yeah, we've been been going every month, almost every month, <laughs> ever since. And uh, meet on the first thirds every month. And we also have special meetings throughout the year. I have a party at my house uh, where we just do like retro gaming and mega gaming. And then we have uh, special guests come in. We had uh, Manny from the Apollo team come in and give us a great vampire demonstration. So we try and throw in some special meetings throughout the year as well. So. That's uh, Amiga. Amiga thing number one is WOG, Westchester Amiga User Group. Uh, and then from WOG uh, came something called the Guru Meditation YouTube channel, which I do with my buddy Anthony and partner in crime at Westchester Amiga User Group. Uh, Anthony and I met when I was 12 years old, man. And we've been like best friends ever since. And uh, we've always been like a huge fan of podcasts. And we always just wanted to the whole reason why we like the user group is because we like to get together with other people. We like to socialize. We like to make new friends and uh, and hang out with really creative and people who inspire us. The Amiga community is filled with so many like creative, talented, and really really nice people. Uh, we just wanted to you know extend beyond the group. Now that we have this amazing thing called the internet, which we didn't have when we first started the club. <laughs> so like it started out as like you know what let's let's make a video for people who couldn't make the meeting. So we're like, let's do that. And then we're like, you know what? We love podcasts. Um, I'm a video professional uh, for a living. So we're like, you know what? Instead of doing a podcast, let's just make a little YouTube channel for anyone who can't come to the meeting. They can see like what we were going to demonstrate. And uh, it'll, be, it'll go something like that. And then all of a sudden it started to, to catch on. And Anthony are like, oh, wow, this YouTube is a lot of fun. Let's try and, and stick with it. And we have, um, you know, both of, our, of us have large Amiga collections. And, um, you know, during during the dark ages, after, you know, shortly after Commodore folded until, I don't know, maybe like five years ago, you know, we still got together. We still met. Uh, but not, not as many people were using their Amigas. I didn't use it as much. I still used it every now and then, but not as much as I do now. And uh, the whole point of the channel was just to, like, bring things out of our collection, uh, get reacquainted with them. And we want to make videos about them to preserve the history because uh, we, we both love history and we both like respect where all the technology comes from. So we want to uh, just preserve this history. Like someone who maybe, you know, had a DigiView back then uh, can watch your video. I'm like, oh yeah, I remember DigiView. That was cool. Or someone who never had a DigiView and always wanted to see it work can check out a video about DigiView. So that's kind of the, the goal of the channel is just to bring out some old hardware and software and, and demo it for people. But then we also do other things too, because Anthony and I exhibit at the Vintage Computer Festival East every year. We have an Amiga exhibit there. So we want to, you know, we'd like to get out in the real world and share our experiences with our viewers. 
So I'll do like show reports from BCF East or I went to Emmy party in Poland a couple of times and I made, made a video about that. So I like to just get a little bit more personal and, you know, take, take the viewers on the adventure with me. So that is number two. <laughs> and then number three is I started this Twitch channel uh, where I do live streams over on Twitch. And I started that, uh, first of all, I just started it as like an experiment because I wanted to practice streaming when uh when no one was, was looking <laughs> so i knew i had like a small audience there I'm like i can just experiment over here and i also wanted to start it because guru meditation is really a team effort man it's me and anthony together but there are plenty of times when life gets in the way and we can't get together and i want to be able to still do a broadcast and still do something still hang out with the immediate community when i couldn't hang out with anthony so that was another reason for starting the twitch channel so i, I stream on twitch i try and stream about once a week for like two hours but it's always a little bit changing because I freelance for a living. So there'll be some weeks where I can stream like three days and other weeks where I go like two weeks without streaming at all. So it's a little hit or miss, but it's a lot of fun. Awesome. Well, it sounds like you are fully immersed in all the aspects <laughs> of uh, the Amiga from, you know, collecting to the in-person community to your virtual community on Twitch. I want to talk a little bit more about the user group, because I think that that is something that's very unique in this day and age. You know, back in the 80s and the 90s, there were user groups for all kinds of platforms all over the country. But it seems like when the Internet became more and more of a thing and more information could be found uh, by just looking it up rather than attending meetings, those have kind of dwindled. Uh, what is so special about the uh, W.A.U.G. that makes it uh, that makes it people come back, you know, week after week or month after month? It's, it's really special. And I think it's uh, it's really a blessing that we have it. There's um, what the, really the thing that makes people come back every month is the friendships. Because the guys in my club uh, just become some of my best friends in the world, and we want to get together and hang out. And that's that's what it all comes down to. That's the bottom line. Uh, but you know, like I said, there were the dark ages of Amiga where lots of people left. Uh, no one was using their Amigas from like you know I don't know not no one, but there was a very small percentage of people not using their Amigas from like 1998 to I don't know 2011 something like that. I'm just pulling a number mm -hmm. years out of my head. But recently, there's like a whole resurgence in retro. There's a whole resurgence in Amiga, and we're actually getting like new members. During the, that, the, that dark period, there was a four or five of us that got together. Uh, but now, like the new members are joining us, and they're coming because again, they've now become friends. They're new friends, which is so cool. And and there's there's things to do again. There's like cool stuff to demo, cool stuff to try out, and it's just really nice. There's nothing like having that physical presence and just like hanging out with friends. And of course, you know, we get together, we work on the machines. Uh, when we meet our regular meetings, we meet in a mall. Unfortunately, I'm trying to trying to fix that. <laughs> but we meet in a mall. So we do everything with emulation. Uh, the special meetings, we actually set up like real Amigas. Um, and then, of course, you know, every meeting concludes with a, a nice night out at the pub. So oh, yeah. it's it's really it all comes down to like really like hang out with friends because there's there's nothing at the meeting that you really can't see over there. Although like when I bring in like an ACA 500, right, or when so when uh, someone from Apollo team comes and brings in a vampire, like you can actually see it in real life. And that, that is definitely, you know, an advantage to, to just seeing a video about it on the internet. There's something special about that. And again, the human interaction, you can just ask a question immediately, get it answered, hopefully. <laughs> and uh, it's just a, it's a great vibe. It's a great, great group of people. And it's really a privilege to have the club. I'm just uh, so happy and, and I feel very lucky to be a part of it. That's that's amazing. That's such a cool group. Um, you know, you mentioned that uh, members from the Apollo team actually brought a vampire in. One thing that I've noticed since, um, you know, I started learning about the Amiga is that people are really crazy about souping these things up. 
Um, you know, while the Amiga was current, of course, there was a, a wide selection of accelerator cards and, and expansions that you could get, which is understandable. But even today, people are still making things to make their Amiga go faster and faster and faster. What is it about the Amiga as a platform that make, get, gives people that drive to do that? Well, it's a tricky question because I think there's well, there's a couple ways to look at it. One is um, there's a group, the group of people, right, who, who love the Amiga for what it is and they want to like retain all the history and keep it as original as possible, and that's awesome. Uh, and then there's a the group of people who are just like, you know, I love this thing. Like, let's see what it can do, <laughs> because now you know we maxed it out back then. But technology has changed. Uh, people have learned a lot more. Uh, you now have like these FPGA boards, and it's like, wow, we have like all this with our beloved Amiga and it all comes back uh, to the thing my theory is that like the Amiga computer itself has got a personality like there's really something special about it like the Amiga is almost like part of your family and that, I know that's true for other computer platforms as well like some people say like, oh yeah the Commodore 64 it was, it was like a family member mm -hmm. these computers have personality I mean look at the Amiga 1000 you open up the case and it's got the signatures of all the engineers and people like who worked on it and even the dogs Mitchie right. the dogs like paw print mm -hmm. so I I think the people who created the machine literally put their heart and souls into it and that is reflected in the machine itself and it's something that i can't put my finger on but i feel it yeah yeah now since you are more a part of that scene than i am um the people that do like to push their amiga to the limits you know that install a vampire card or or one of the more modern accelerators what do you do with all that extra power because it doesn't exactly make you know your your games run better or make things you know run i mean are there still lots of modern day productivity applications that benefit from that speed increase oh yeah there there are for sure but i think it's it's almost more about like here's an amiga 500 with aga graphics so it just never saw it like never just saw because you can we can do it things, yeah. <laughs> there's, well there's definitely that element too but then you know if you're if you're doing things like you know 3d modeling and rendering with lightwave it sure it sure helps to, to have a faster uh machine um but the thing with the vampire that is pretty cool too again, i'm not an expert uh, with with uh, the hardware end of it but the vampire is supposed to like retain like 68,000. It's supposed to retain uh, that that heritage. So it's all about like keeping, like still using the real hardware. Like I still have this old computer and now I can, I can do more things with it. I can do things with it that I couldn't do back then, but I'm still using the real hardware. Because the truth is like the emulators are just as fast or faster, right, than, than the vampire. But the vampire keeps that hardware still alive. It, 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 you know, there's a lot of debate about it, but still, like, I, I this and this was really a cool thing about the user group meeting. I've always been like, okay, the vampire is cool, but I have a Raspberry Pi and it's probably just as fast mm -hmm. or faster, right? right? I don't know why I need this vampire. But then at the meeting, when there was an Amiga 500 there, playing like the amazing like AGA demos that I want to play and I don't, I can't because I don't have a Blizzard 060. I was like, that's cool. It's sitting right there in front of me. I see it, and there's that physical experience. Mm -hmm. And you can like hook it up to a CRT monitor, which is, you know, uh, yeah, I know you can do HDMI as well, but there's nothing like seeing that like on a CRT. I, oh, yeah. I, I love that. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, there's, and it, you know, it's just also about like challenging yourself. That's the thing that draws me to the Amiga in the modern times as well. Like, I'm a, a cinematographer and a photographer, and now we now have like these incredible digital cameras with resolutions that you never dreamed of with the Amiga. But by limiting yourself, by like not like now, like if I think it, I can create it with my with my camera and like After Effects almost, you know, it's like it's almost like there are no limits, which is really great because you're you're there's no limits to your creativity. But at the same time, 
like if you use this old hardware that does have limitations, it also like pushes you to be more creative in other ways. So that's what I'm enjoying with me. I'm enjoying taking some like modern photos and, and some modern video work and seeing, you know, what, what I can, how I can like enhance that with the Amiga. Like how can I give it like a, a unique look with mm-hmm. the Amiga, you know, like, and also now I am, I have more experience. I'm more educated in my field because back then, you know, I was, I was a teenager and I was just learning about photography. Now I have a lot more experience. Now I'm like, okay, with all of my experience and knowledge, like, let me see what I can do with the Amiga. Like, let me push it to where I always want to push it, but I couldn't because I didn't have the experience and the maturity yet. That's awesome. Um, let's go back to your teenage days, to your early <laughs> days with the Amiga. What drew you to the platform to begin with? Uh, well, the first thing that drew me to the Amiga was the games, mm-hmm. like, no doubt. I used to, you know, buy the games for like my Commodore 64 and my Atari, and on the back, they would show you different screenshots of all the different platforms. And it would always be like, you'd see the Amiga, and you're like, oh man, like, I <laughs> if wish only mine looked like that. Yeah. <laughs> if only mine looked like that. And I always dreamed of having one. Uh, but the Amiga 1000, you know, was, was quite pricey. Yeah. And then uh, when Amiga was bought by Commodore, those engineers are, are brilliant, and they figured out a way to put that technology into the Amiga 500 and deliver it at a much more inexpensive price point. Mm-hmm. And at that point, you know, my dad, who has just been like super, super supportive of me, uh, went out and, and purchased it for me. And that was, uh, yeah, one of, the, one of the best days of my life. And I'm so thankful that, you know, I had parents who were so supportive to, they, they would, my mom was a stay at home mom and my dad's a teacher. They're not, they're not loaded, but they, you know, man, they just went out on a limb to, to buy nice things for me. And I appreciate that so much. That's awesome. That's so yeah. cool. Do you still remember the day that you brought it home? Christmas day, 1987. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's easy. Yeah, that's so <laughs> I cool. Had it, I had it out and I was playing Barbarian by Psygnosis. <laughs> uh, what else? Marble Madness. Mm-hmm. Those were, I think those are my first two games. Of course, you know, and, in 87, I mean, the, the floodgates hadn't really opened as far as the, the software yet. There were still kind of a lot of, it was sort of a limited release those first couple of years. So you were limited on what games you had. I know that we covered Marvel. Marvel Madness was one of the very first releases for the platform at all. Yeah, Marvel Madness is great. And it's also like Marvel Madness and Arkanoid. You know, those mm-hmm. are two of my favorite, like, uh, arcade games and the Amiga version was just so close to the yeah, arcade version. Absolutely. I was just like, wow, I'd like the arcade in my house. This is that's, amazing. That's right. Now, did you stick with the 500 for very long before you, before you upgraded to a different machine? Yeah, I had the 500 for, um, probably until about 1990, 1991. Mm-hmm. And then, um, my neighbor actually had a 2000 and he like sold it to us at a great deal. So the 2000 became my, my main machine. And I had an O20 accelerator in it. I had a, a nice, like, whopping 40 megabyte hard drive in it. <laughs> and and that was my main machine. I would I used the, the 500 for most of the games. And then for all of my artwork, I would use the 1200. I, you know, I used, like, Imagine, Deluxe Paint, mm-hmm. Art Department Professional, Digiview. That all went over to uh, the 2000. That's awesome. Were you able to use some of the tricks that you learned? Well, let me actually let me ask you this: when you when you started taking courses in college for for this stuff, video production and stuff like that, uh, was were there any Amigas in use at the labs or anything like that? Uh, there weren't, but that was what was pretty cool. Um, it's I see. I went to school in I started nineteen. Well, I went to college in nineteen ninety three, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I started doing the art projects in like 94, 95. So the Amiga was still like pretty cutting edge at that yeah, time. Yeah. And a lot of the schools, they had, they were still running like 
old old cryons and stuff chirons you know to do other titles and stuff so then i would like come in with my like 3d graphics i made in imagine and depaint i was still knocking their socks off <laughs> yeah man you were ahead of the curve right there <laughs> yeah I was, I was still ahead of the curve there <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome so it's really it's so cool how the you know the the skills that you learn just as a hobbyist you know working with these these pieces of software in the 2000 had a direct effect on your current career oh they sure did they sure did um i mean well there are two big things that, uh, you know, pointed me in the direction of my career. My dad teaches TV production, so I've always had a video camera around the house. Even in the 70s, we had this this big three-quarter inch camera mm-hmm. and uh, this, this huge like wagon that he used to like <laughs> move around to the camera control unit and and the, and the, the recording deck. So there was always a camera around the house. And then the Amiga obviously uh, had a huge impact on me trying to be an artist. But the funny thing is, I just never. I never really thought it could be a career. I always thought it was kind of a fun hobby. Uh, and but the, my real career would be like computers and IT. You know, mm-hmm. like to use use it. You know, I have to I do the serious stuff to make a living, uh, and then the art stuff would just be for fun. But then um, things things changed. <laughs> I got I got a job in IT uh, when I was in high school, and I realized that it just it wasn't for me. I didn't really enjoy going into like an office and a cubicle every day. And I was like, wow, I'm gonna be doing this the rest of my life. It's not not for me. I I would like to do something else. And I took a photography class and my photography teacher, I uh, was like, wow, you're, you know, you've got a knack for this, you know, maybe you want to pursue this. So I always loved, you know, video and doing videos on the Amiga. I had the video club in high school and all that. And then I was like, and my teacher in college just told me like, wow, you know, this is your photography is really good. Like you could, you could do something with this. And then I started thinking about it and like, I'm like, wow, all these movies I watch have credits at the end. So these people are doing it for a living. And then I know like there's famous photographers. who I look up to, they're doing it for a living you know, maybe I'll give it a go to and I'll, I might as well give it a shot. I've got nothing to lose. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. So, um, this is where we're going to leave the, the field of the media for a second. Cause I'm just really, you know, curious, how, how did you kind of break into the, the industry that you're in now with the video production and stuff like that? Oh yeah. Well, I'm a cinematographer, so I'm responsible for, for the look of the piece. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I shoot mostly uh, TV commercials and promos. I also do, uh, documentaries as well. Just giving you a little background in case the viewers are no, definitely not familiar with my work. Um, I, I was a uh, camera on like David Letterman's new show on Netflix called My Next Guest News and Introduction. I shot uh, the first season of Comedian Cars Getting Coffee. Um, I did this really cool uh, job with Jonathan Demme, who is like one of my all-time favorite directors, called Justin Timberlake and the Tennessee Kids. And then just like tons of commercials and promos for like Chevy. I even did some Apple commercials, uh, some IBM Trader. Spots. So yeah, I've been like super, <laughs> super lucky to have so many, so many cool projects. And um the way I'm now, I lost track with, I started giving my resume and I lost track of the question. What was the question again? So, yeah, I mean, how did you, how did you start to get noticed, oh, right. you know? In the All right. So, um, so then I decided that, um, I wasn't going to go into, into it and I wanted to, to pursue filmmaking. So I was like, I don't, don't know anyone in the filmmaking business. I don't know what to do. Maybe I'll just apply to film school. Seems like the most logical thing to do. So I uh, applied to a few different film schools, and I was really lucky. I got into my first choice, which was NYU Film School, which is I hear uh, they're pretty good. Yeah, it's a prestigious <laughs> film, uh, film yeah. school. Like you know, we had Martin Scorsese teaching there, and and Spike Lee. So I was just again, that was a huge opportunity that I'm so thankful for, and I'm just I'm so lucky because it's so hard to get into that school. There's a lot of like really great people who don't make it who should make it. And there's a lot of people who make it that really don't belong there. But I'm just really lucky that I was able to, to get in. And I, uh, I'm i so thankful for my time there. And I just, I tried to maximize it uh, as much as I could. I really like appreciate that I was able to go there. And um, when you go to film school, 
I mean, this is in the 90s, at least. I'm not sure what it's like now. Things have changed a little bit. But in the 90s, like, everyone wanted to be a director. Like, everyone wanted to be Quentin Tarantino. That's mm-hmm. Everybody wanted to be Tarantino. <laughs> but I knew that directing wasn't my thing. I'm, I'm, a, camera, I'm a camera guy, and I, I do photography. You know, like, making people look good and making things, like, lighting the scene and making it moody is, is what I do. Um, so being that everyone wanted to be a director, they all needed a cinematographer to shoot their film. So there was, like, five of us and, like, a thousand directors. So I got to shoot everyone's films and then there was also people who want to be producers and again they were a super small percentage even less even fewer people want to be producers than cinematographers so uh, my friend justin and i became friends uh there were there there were a couple of us in like this little group and then uh when we graduated like my friend justin got his first producing job and he needs to hire a cinematographer and he this is his first producing job he doesn't know any real cinematographers so he called me he's like hey i got this job <laughs> can you shoot it for me i'm like sure um and then it it, it went really well and uh it led it, it was actually um a documentary about save young glover the tap dancer and then the company i was working for is like you know uh you're good with these like new digital cameras because they were they were like brand new at the time like mini dv had just come out a lot of like the really experienced cinematographers only knew how to shoot on film but i knew how to shoot with these little cameras They're like we have this new show coming out it's it's a, it's a documentary show and it's called The Life and it's based on uh, ESPN. The magazine has an article called The Life and they kind of like do a day in the life of either like a professional athlete who's like famous or they do like more unique stories as well, like 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 a horse at the Kentucky Derby or, you know, like the guy who collects the golf balls at the driving range. So they do all these cool, unique stories They're like, so uh, would you want to shoot that show for us? And I said, sure, I'd love to. So I shot the show for, you know, six to eight months. And uh, at the end of the show, they had credits. And um, some people liked the show a lot. It was pretty new and pretty different. Like not to make people have these small little cameras to do like these intimate uh, videos about about these uh, subjects. So people started calling me based on my name in the credits. And then the production company I shot for is also like a really incredible production company. So they hired me to do lots of other cool projects for them as well. So that's how it all started. Oh man, that's amazing. Um, Now in your line of work, how much goes into the post-production or is that just a whole different person? Are you just responsible for providing the footage? Yeah, I I do. I'm responsible. I read the script or, you know, and the storyboards, whether it's a film or a commercial. And then I decide, you know, like how we're going to approach it from a technical standpoint and how many, how many people we need on the crew, like how many uh, electrics and grips and camera systems I need, like what camera we're going to shoot on. And then when it comes time to shoot it, I'm responsible for like lighting the set and making it look the way the director and the production company wants. Uh, and then once it's over, I basically hand the footage over unfortunately, because I do love and respect the editing process very much, but it's a, so, a totally separate thing because if I were to edit it too, it takes so long to edit that I wouldn't be able to do other shooting Oh, sure. Things. That's what and I was so, thinking. Yeah, but, but one thing I do do in post-production is uh, color grading, which has become a really big part of the process because nowadays with digital, uh, all these cameras shoot a very like flat color profile mm-hmm. with like, no color and no contrast, mm-hmm. and you can dramatically change like what you're saying with the image uh, in this color grading process where you add contrast, you add color, you change the colors, mm-hmm. you can soften people's skin. So a lot of times what I'll do is I will come in for that part of the post-production process. Oh, okay. um, but the flip side to that though is I, I respect editing and I love editing and even like doing the little guru meditation videos allows me to um, you know see the world from the editor's perspective and that's important to me as a cinematographer because I need to provide the editor with good material and material that's going to edit together. <laughs> yeah. so if I don't understand editing, then I am not able to, to give the editor good material to work with and they'll just end up trying to make it work instead of trying to make something great. Have you ever shot a whole bunch of film and just been so excited for a project and see it turn out so much differently than you you know initially thought? 
yeah, there's definitely disappointing moments for sure. But I'd have to say, usually it, you know, the people make some magic out of, out of the stuff. I work with some really talented people and I, I see what they did. And I'm like, oh, wow. Thank you. Thank you for making me look good. <laughs> That's awesome. So yeah. when you, it, it seems like such a cool job to be able to look at a, look at a script and then everything just pops into your head. You know, you can see all the equipment that you need. And then is the equipment provided by the production company on the shoot then? And you just yeah, step so in. It's all different. Sometimes, usually it's all rented, right? They have mm -hmm. special uh, camera rental houses because cameras are so expensive. They're over a hundred thousand dollars, you know, for, like for the cameras that we use. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. So there are uh, companies that just specialize in like renting out cameras, and the production company rents them from these rental houses. And the same thing with the lights, because it's hard for anyone to own it all. Now I own like a smaller camera. And I own some smaller lights. So on the smaller jobs, you know, not not every job is is big. On the smaller jobs, I can provide like a very very nice camera and very very. Uh, nice lights for a small job. And, you know, there's a lot of other uh, guys that do that as well. Some of them even own like a, a van or like a three ton truck filled with lights. Mm -hmm. So, um, sometimes it comes from a, an like a, sometimes it comes from a private person, but you know, nine times out of 10, it comes from like a, a large rental house. Okay. Okay. And what do you think, um, about, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm I keep going on about this cause I think it's really interesting, oh, no but, problem. um, what do you think about companies like red and all of these, you know, new kids on the block that are producing these really, these cameras that seem like they give you really, really good results for a fraction of the cost of what a traditional, you know, $100,000 camera costs. What can those $100,000 cameras still provide that a RED camera can't? Well, first of all, the red camera is one of those hundred thousand dollar cameras because like a fully blown, a fully blown red, uh, like the the red mantra, which I just shot with um, the brain, which is basically just the sensor, is about eighty thousand dollars. Oh my god! Okay. To, yeah, yeah. So but there are more. There are cheaper reds. <laughs> there are reds right around the ten thousand dollar range. Okay. But the reds, the, I consider the red like a professional, like a high end professional camera. But the thing that, but just while we're talking about red, the thing that's really cool about red is that they push the industry like no other camera manufacturer ever did, right? So you, you had the holy grail when I was in school. Well, you always want to shoot film and nothing could have that film look, right? Mm -hmm. When you like when you did your home movies, it didn't look anything like a movie you saw in the theater because film was just so far superior to video. Um, it had better dynamic range. It had better color science. It had uh, 24 frames per second, man. That was 24 frames per second was the holy grail. Mm -hmm. And none of these video camera production companies like like Sony or they were all they were so far behind and they were they weren't focused on making their cameras cinematic at all and then like along comes red and red was the first like digital camera where it's like whoa like this looks good <laughs> like this is an alternative to film this is good and then all of a sudden you got companies like Sony you got companies like Ari being like oh oh wow like there's something to this. We really need to step up our game. And then all of a sudden, like all like everything that you see now, I feel like comes from that. Mm. It's like, or, you know, not I me, mean, not everything, but you know what I mean? Like that was a huge instigator to uh, the scene that we have now in the camera industry. And um, then to totally answer your question about um, what it was about the, the smaller cameras. Yeah. The smaller cameras, like your iPhone can shoot 4k now, which is, which is amazing. And, there's there's a lot of great things about that. All mostly great. There's some not so great things where like people say, oh, you know, my shoot, my iPhone shoots 4K. It's like no, no, it does, but it's not not the same as using one of these professional cameras because there's more than just resolution. Resolution is is great, and I'm all for 4K and higher resolutions. But there's a lot more to creating the image than just the resolution. So there's a lot of marketing involved. But the cool thing is like the fact that these cameras 
are so good. Like you can get like a DSLR that shoots amazing video, or you can get like the Sony A7S, which is an incredible little right. mirrorless camera. Yeah. So I camera. mean, let's 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 take that. Let's take the A7S for for okay. example, because I look at footage taken from that on like I don't know, like somebody's skateboard video or something like that. And I'm right. like, how could that get any better? You know, like what if you were shooting that with a hundred thousand dollar camera? What right. would be better about that? Okay, well, it, it's it's very interesting. That's a very interesting point because you know, to be honest, a lot of people can't tell the difference. But a lot of what's better is two things that are what's better. <laughs> First of all, the what's better is like the onset professional experience. Like when I'm on set, it's not just about shooting, right? There's uh, camera assistants that need to pull focus. There's digital imaging technicians that to, need to like monitor for me. Mm. There are clients, which are extremely important, that mm. need to to monitor and watch everything. And a lot of these professional cameras are just set up for that level of production where a little Sony A7S is like a nightmare to bring on to set and have people do video village and do like the professional things that, that we have to do to make something look like really professional. Mm -hmm. Even though the skateboard film looks great and it does, it's still not a real movie. You right. know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> but, but that line is, is getting more blurred these days. And I think it's really cool because it's like democratized, uh, uh, filmmaking, right? Cause it put it in the hands of the people. Like you really, even like in the 90s, like you almost like had to know somebody to like get into the business. You had to, it was really hard to like shoot on film. But now, like if you have a great idea, the technology of the cameras is incredible. Like you can create something that looks absolutely amazing. And then you have really incredible platforms like YouTube and like Vimeo where you can like be your own distributor and you can get it out there into the world and people can see it because that was the other problem. Even if you made something great back then, you know, you'd be like projecting it in your basement and for your right. friends and that's about it. But now you can like get it out there. So it's really exciting times. That's cool. So you're you, you don't fear the loss of uh, of professional uh, like people like you. Basically, you don't think your job is going anywhere anytime soon because it really is a different skill set to be able to manage a whole team of people do a shoot. Uh, it's a, yeah, it's a much different skill set. Um, but at the same time, there's obviously more there's more competition and more people are interested in filmmaking now. So there's definitely. I'm not going to say like a threat, but there's more competition. You have to stay on your toes, but it is like almost like two separate things. You know, like I, I it's really interesting. I was thinking about this, uh, and YouTube recently, like YouTube is such a, a unique place because you have like these, these YouTubers who are getting like millions, have millions of followers and millions of views, but they wouldn't really make it on like a professional film set. Not all, again, that, that's just a, a big generalization right there. But then you have people who are great on a professional film set, but they could never make it as a YouTuber. So mm -hmm. it's like these two different worlds. So like on YouTube, you have like these, these like, you know, grassroots people who are like doing their own thing, like in, in their, in, in their house, <laughs> you know, with a Sony a7S and they're creating like some really great stuff. Uh, and then you have, so you can like click on that or you could click on like a Hollywood movie trailer. Like the difference is like huge, but they're all there and they're all like competing for your time. That's so right. Like you they're have the all choice, just a click man. away. Yeah. Yeah. You have the choice. Like you could click on a Star Wars trailer or you could watch an episode of the Amigos. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, it's really whenever I think about the people that watch our show and I think about, you know, we're competing with this because it's all time. You know, it's all I'm yeah. spending my time doing this thing because you can only do one thing at a time. Yeah. It is amazing how how, like you said, YouTube has democratized the, uh, the yeah. platform. But I also think that some of the, the people who are YouTubers, right? I think they're also going to make the transition to doing something at a higher level and and more professional filmmaking because if that's what they if that's what they want to do, uh, the YouTube gives them a, a great start in that. And it's just if that's their end goal, like they can achieve it. You know, I guess there for them, they can do it. Um, but not everyone wants to work on a movie set or a commercial set. There's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of things. Maybe they're just happy being a YouTuber. It's just it's interesting. It's very interesting times. You know. Yeah. I, I respect I respect uh, both avenues very very much. I'm I'm fascinated by youtubers and twitch streamers who are that popular like when there's a 
like a 20 year old kid in his, in his bedroom. And like, you see his closet door open behind him and all his clothes falling out, but he's got like over a hundred thousand people watching. him. I'm like, wow, there's like, there's something to this man. Like this is, this is cool. <laughs> this is the future. You know, I teach middle school and, uh, it's very rare that my kids will sit and talk about uh, a show that they watched on TV. You know, it's all about YouTubers. It's all about people they watch on Twitch. It's that those are the people that are, that young people today are growing up wanting to be. And it's never been easier to be one of those people <laughs> than today either. It's so true. I, I imagine like explaining to a kid today, oh, you want to watch something. You have to be home at your house in front of the TV at a specific time, one day out of the week. Mm-hmm. And if you miss it, you better hope your VCR worked. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to see it. Like, right. Just, I, they won't be able to wrap their heads around that. They just, they're like, I want to see it now click there it is yeah (laughs) everything's on demand it blows Um, my mind can you talk a little bit about your photography work sure sure i mean photography is kind of like my my side hustle in a way Mm -hmm. like the photography is what um i love photography because it's so personal to me it's something that you know i think about in my head then i can take my little camera out shoot it and then i can do all the the post-production myself it's not it's not a, a huge production so it's very the things I shoot for my photography are just very personal to me and they're exactly like what I want to do. Um, so I have done some professional photography, especially when it comes to like shooting TV commercials. Sometimes they have an entire like ad campaign and they want the person who shoots the commercial to also shoot the stills to keep like a cohesive look throughout their whole campaign. So I've done that lots of times. Um, I've also shot for different magazines. I've shot for Destinations magazine. Uh, so I, I've done like some paid photography work, but it's mostly just like personal stuff to, to keep myself uh, feeling creative, to feed my creativity and to let me uh, experiment uh, with different lights with different lenses that I can't really afford to experiment with like on the job. So I can experiment with these different techniques on my own, see what works, see what doesn't, and then, you know, apply it to, to my, my real job. So what's your, what's your rig look like these days? What your, your still photography rig? My still, well, I'm actually, I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm, I feel, I'm feeling old. I'm feeling behind. <laughs> I still have a, a, a DSLR with a mirror. I have a, a Canon 5D Mark III. Hey, and, that's not an old camera. It's not I'm an old you, camera. <laughs> I gotta say, I've been playing around with that so, oh, the Sony A7S and A7R and I'm like, wow, like. The only this. thing, I mean, <laughs> the only thing Canon, they, they refuse to put real video on their DSLRs because they don't want to cannibalize the sales of their their film cam- or their their movie cameras but man the 5D Mark 3 I mean do you awesome. do you see I mean do you see an advantage of shooting full frame rather than you know with the clip with a with a micro four thirds yeah but full frame is, is awesome because you get the shadow depth of field i mm-hmm. love it you know yeah. it, it looks sweet and then you know all the focal lengths are a little bit different uh but the full frame is is beautiful i think it's absolutely gorgeous and you know a lot of film manufacturers are moving towards that like the new the red monstro center sensor is absolutely enormous <laughs> it's super shallow depth of field uh Arriflex just came out uh with a new camera uh, another large format camera and it's uh it gives you that because you know the whole goal when you're doing cinematography, not the only goal, but one of the main goals is to create three dimensions on a two dimensional plane. Mm-hmm. Right. And so we do that with lensing and lighting. And when you have the larger sensor and you can like really make your depth of field shallow or make it very deep, that's very valid as well. But when you have like you can use that depth of field as a tool, you have the choices say, OK, I want this to be shallow depth of field. I want you to really focus on the character or I want this to be like really deep depth of field because this is like a huge, wide, gorgeous landscape. And that is the most important thing. That's what I'm trying to 
you'll tell the story with. Um, I think the, the full frame is, is, is neat, man. I like it. <laughs> I, I think my next camera is going to be the 5D Mark II because I don't roll with the, you know, with the, with the really, really high dollar stuff. But the, the, the great thing about cameras is that new ones always make old ones cheaper. <laughs> And, it's very true. It's and, very true. And, 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 you know, and the truth is like, it's really important to be up on the technology and to like appreciate the technology and appreciate all these manufacturers that are pushing it as hard as they can. But the, what it all comes down to is like the best camera is the one that you have. And it all, the only thing that matters is that like you have something to say with the picture you're taking, you know, or, or, or the film you're making, like if you just want to get your point across, you mm-hmm. know, and, and that's the most important thing. Like it doesn't matter if you shoot it on a, an iPhone, if it looks, if it looks good and you like, and you are able to express yourself, then you're in good shape. You know, it doesn't. The resolution doesn't matter. You can create beautiful images with any any phone, any camera, any resolution. It doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. They say the best camera is the one you've got in your pocket. Yeah, so. <laughs> for um, sure. The lighting is key, man. The lighting is so important too. That's something that's that's hard to hard to learn. Very difficult to learn. And it's something that I focused on in film school the most because I knew nothing about it going into film school. Like I knew understood what a camera was, what a lens was, but I didn't understand it's a what funny, lighting was. It's a funny story with the Amigos. We've gone full circle where we started out with no studio lighting, and then I bought a bunch of studio lighting. And I was not happy with it. I don't think I spent enough. That was the problem. Because sometimes cheap lighting is is not as good as, or, you know, no lighting is better than cheap lighting. Mm-hmm. And so now we've put everything back and we just bought a better webcam, you know, <laughs> and that, yeah. that that compensates. But, um, yeah, sometime if, if, if we ever, if we ever get together, I need to, I need to learn some things about studio lighting from you. Because that's the one oh. aspect of the Amigos I wish we could, we could do better with. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. I would love to help out. And, and I can give you one piece of advice that uh, Michael Barrow, who was uh, the gaffer, on uh, the original Sex in the City, he was a legendary New York actor, and then became a great cinematographer himself. He was kind of like my my mentor when I was first starting out. He said that a, a bare light bulb can look beautiful as long as you put it in the right place, and that's what it all comes down to. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it all yeah. comes down to like where you place the light. Yeah, no, that's even all, more so than the type of light that you use. It just comes down to like where you where you put it. That's the most important thing. That's I'm sure that that's true. Yeah. Hey, uh, I, I want to talk to you about all of these these high profile. Um, you know, shoots that you've worked on, uh, you know, whether it's comedians and cars getting coffee or the, the new Letterman show. Um, do you have any, any amusing anecdotes with working with these big stars? Oh man. Yeah. There's, there's quite a few. I can say, I can say that Alec <laughs> that you Baldwin, can talk about it. Yeah. Least. <laughs> Alec Baldwin. Um, he, he, they cut out a lot from that one. <laughs> he was, he was on fire. He didn't even, uh, so the whole point of comedians and cars is that, uh, Jerry Seinfeld is like, we have all these great new cameras. Uh, they don't require a lot of light. I want to make a show where you're, my, myself and my guest, like forget about all the cameras. Like mm-hmm. I want no lights. I don't want any cameras on our face. I just want it to be an extremely natural conversation with myself and my friends. That's all I want. He's like, no cameras in the face, no lights, no nothing. Like, stay away. So, you know, when we picked up Alec Baldwin, like, he was just going off in the car and it, it took him like 45 minutes. He was just going off and he's just like, he's like, Jerry's like, um, he's like, when, when are we going to start the show? I've been here for 45 minutes. And Jerry's like, this is the show. It's like, he's like, look, we got cameras over here. And Baldwin's like, son of a gun, you got me, Jerry. And then, <laughs> and then he went, then he handed off you and more. <laughs> That's great. Um, man, funny anecdotes. Um, I'd have to, is it do you find that it's do you find that it's easy to work with people like David Letterman? I mean, are you how much of it is you versus how much of it is it the director in terms of face to face time with the guy? The director and the producer definitely have the most face to face time, but mm-hmm. I also have face to face time, uh, especially, you know, on some of these commercials and shows like 
they want to make sure they look good. They want to make sure they look their best. And that's all on me. <laughs> so I have to have a good rapport with them as well. And, you know, I have to light them the right way. And I'm standing there talking to them. And, and especially um, so that's from the commercial side. But from the documentary side, you know, I get, uh, you know, very close to my subjects. You know, I did this, um, this, this project to raise awareness for clean water for Africa. And I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro with Jessica Biel for seven days. So, you know, we got really close and I, you know, we saw each other in like the darkest moments. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> so I had uh, plenty of, uh, of FaceTime with, like with that group of people. Wow. So it's, um, yeah, every project's a little bit different, but I do have, I do have interaction with them as well. And it all comes down to, you know, respect. You have to, um, it's like, I'll never quite understand what it's like to be a celebrity like that. And some of them like handle it better than others, mm-hmm. but you just have to, you know, respect the person, treat them with respect, uh, you know, give them confidence that you're there to like help them and make them look their best. And you're not there to, to exploit them. Um, and you have to like, you know, earn their, earn their trust. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. Yeah. And that's what it all comes down to. What's the most starstruck you've ever been working with somebody? I, I guess it would be uh, either it would be, be Bill Clinton or Barack Obama just because they're, you know, United States presidents. And oh, yeah. It's like, wow, like these these guys are real famous. And uh, LeBron James as well. I have a nice story about Le- LeBron, actually. Uh, I was doing a show called Nike Battlegrounds, and it was his show where uh, he was training these young kids how to play street basketball. And uh, we were shooting the promos for the show. So we were out in Akron, Ohio, where he's from and uh, shooting on like these courts that he donated to the community. And we had like all these like lights and like rain effects and all this stuff. And he was, you know, he was out there for, for an hour, you know, um, trying to, to get all the shots we wanted, slam dunking, doing three pointers, <laughs> all this stuff. And then like after we were shooting, like instead of just like getting into the car and going home, he just started playing basketball with like all the kids in the community who are there watching. Oh, it must man. have been like the most amazing night for them ever. He was such a, so cool. a good guy, man. It was really, really cool. Like he just, he's like, no, nah, I'm not going home. Like I built these courts for these kids and I'm here and we're going to, we're going to play some basketball. It was really nice to see. It does your heart good when you see things like that. But, you yeah. Know, not everybody yeah, in Hollywood's a total jerk. And <laughs> No, exactly. Exactly. Um, there's another story I was going to tell you and I just forgot about someone being nice. And I, I can't remember. I'm sorry. I'll see if I can remember. I thought of it as I was telling you the LeBron story and I forgot. Sorry. That's okay. That's okay. Editing. Um, so oh, Bill Clinton. Okay. Yeah. Hit so, me. Um, yeah. So Bill Clinton, uh, he actually, uh, they don't live too far away from me up here. They're in Westchester. I we should invite him to a Westchester Amiga user. Absolutely. Uh, maybe, maybe he's into, <laughs> into the Amiga. But uh, we were shooting some, uh, some promos for the Boys and Girls Club because he's heavily uh, involved with the Boys and Girls Club and we were shooting them at his house. So it was pretty amazing. We got to go to his house and we shot them in the barn. And that's like Bill's hangout spot. That's like his, that's his man cave, the barn, like Bill's barn, right? <laughs> so um, the director, like we're all like a little, you know, we're all like a little intimidated, man. This is like former president of the United States. We're in his home. Uh, and they told us like, you know, Mr. Clinton has a very limited time. Uh, he needs, he's going to, he has to get to an event. Uh, so, you know, just, you know, get your stuff and get out essentially, you know, because, you know, respect his time. So the director was like, certainly like nervous. So it, um, uh, Bill Clinton, uh, Bill Clinton comes over and for the first thing he says, though, it's, it's kind of like lighten the mood a little bit. Uh, there was all this construction happening and obviously the construction affects the sound. And, uh, he, he shows up and he's like, he's like, he's like, Hey guys, I'm really sorry about the sound. He's like, my septic system's all messed up. I'm having it worked on. And it was true. Like he, they were literally like <laughs> taking out the septic system. So it was kind of, he was kind of like lightening the mood. So he came in, he did the, the promos for the boys and girls club and not everything was cool. The director was like, thank you. Um, I, you know, they only did like, like one take with them cause they want to let him go. And they're like, you can go now, Mr. Clinton. And he's like, okay. And so he got up and then, uh, then he started like asking me questions. He's like, what, 
He's like, what kind of camera is that? And I started, you know, telling him about the camera. He's like, oh, that's cool, because he's actually very much into filmmaking. Oh. And uh, and then we were like in his in his office, and he started like, giving me a tour. And like, I looked over on his desk, and he had like a Bill Clinton marionette puppet. And he, like he picked it up. He's like, ah! and he was like playing with the puppet. And then I swear to you, I'm, this is unbelievable. But there was like a bright yellow book on his bookshelf. And I was like, I, I'm like, what is that? Like, what is this bright yellow book on this, you know, this bookshelf? And it was impeachment for dummies. <laughs> it's <laughs> it was, hilarious. It was, it was hilarious. Yeah. And then like he showed me, uh, he showed me like um, the, the sword that um, the leader of Japan gave him. He's like, that's my samurai sword. He's like, don't touch it. Sharp. We'll cut you. <laughs> he had a, and so he just started showing me around his house. It was, it was really amazing. It was definitely uh, something I'll never forget. And meanwhile, the director's like, oh man, he's showing Bill around the house. I could have done like two more takes. <laughs> so that, that was, uh, that was very cool. Um, let's see other, other stories. Um, I thought, and again, I was telling you the Bill Clinton story mm-hmm. and I forgot, Oh, um, I got, I got one about, um, I'm not about, uh, Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, uh, let me think. I don't know. Let's put it this way. Um, so Martin Scorsese is, is a genius, right? Um, and he, can be known to, um, he, he knows what he wants and he's an artist and that makes him at times he can be a little difficult to work with. Right. So, um, I was shooting these, uh, promos for, for a movie, um, called, um, Shutter Island that he did Leonardo DiCaprio. Very scary so it, film, I think. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And we were part of like a press junket. So like when they, you know, when they're selling the film, they like rent out a hotel and then all the talent, the actors go around from like room to room and they're like, they do an interview with E and then, you know, they do an interview with Access Hollywood. And this was a, a promo for that I was shooting was for uh, American movie channel, AMC. Um, so, um, everyone like was warned. They're like, look, Martin Scorsese, he's a very focused man. Uh, his time is very limited. You know, when he comes into the room, like, please like, don't look at him, don't engage with him. Just let him come in and do his thing totally professional and get out. Um, and we were like heavily warned by the producer. So it was, um, everyone's a little nervous. Yeah. And of course, like Martin Scorsese is like, like a lot of us idolize him because his films are absolutely incredible. Right. So, uh, Martin Scorsese comes like marching down the hall and he, like, he goes up to, um, one of the, the main, I'm not sure if it's the president of AMC or a, a, a big person at AMC. And he's, he's gets into like a little bit of a debate with that person. Let's call it that. Okay. <laughs> and he's upset that they're putting, uh, commercials in his films. <laughs> he's like, I, and they're editing them. He's like, he's like, I put a lot of time and effort and thought into like every single frame of this movie. And now my, my films come on this channel and, um, and they're, they're edited and you know, I don't appreciate that. And then the AMC was for like very, very like smart response. They're like, look, you know, like we're just trying to introduce your films to like a younger generation, a new generation of people. And, you know, like we're doing the best we can to preserve their integrity. Blah, blah. So he was like, his feathers were ruffled. <laughs> um, so like he comes into the room and everyone like heard this discussion in the hallway and uh, everyone was like super, super nervous. And then uh, and Martin Scorsese comes in and we were shooting with the 5D. We we're just talking about the 5D. We we're And this is when the 5D first came out, the 5D Mark II, and it could do like video. And right. It was, like all HD the range, video. Like, full frame, it yeah. could do video. But Martin Scorsese wasn't like privy to that because he's using like, uh, you know, he's using Aeroflex cameras his whole career. So he, he comes in, he walks in, everyone's hiding. There's like seven camera or five camera operators in the room. And then uh, he sits there and he's like looking around. He's looking at the table. He's like, he's like, what is this? He's like, is this a photo shoot? I didn't come here to do a photo shoot. I came here to do an interview. And he's like looking at me because like I'm the one you know behind the main camera. I'm like, oh god. Oh man. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like I'm like I'm in, I'm in trouble. I don't know what to do. Like I don't know what to say. And I was like, these are actually, I'm like, Mr. Crusade, these are actually they look like photo cameras, but actually like shooting video. And I'm like doing my best to sell them. And he's just like looking at it. And he's like trying to like process it all. And then all of a sudden, like Leonardo DiCaprio like walks into the room, and he looks at the camera. And he's like, 
no way, are these the 5Ds? I've always wanted to shoot with these cameras. That's awesome. And Scorsese's like, looking at like, all right, all right, that's cool. It's cool. Oh, he saved you. <laughs> Leo saved like, you. Oh, thank God. Leo saved me. Leo saved me. And then, and then he looks at Leo and goes, does Bobby know about these things? Bobby is, uh, is, <laughs> is, um, it's, um, Martin Scorsese's like long time cinematographer. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Robert Richardson. Everyone, you know, his name is Robert Richardson, but, but Martin Scorsese calls him Bobby. <laughs> So, well, you, you know, you've done you've done so much and you, you've you you've had all these great experiences. Um, what what do you think? Um, what would I mean, what would it take for you to do to be able to be a cinematographer on a feature film? I'm still trying to figure that one out. But no, no I tell you what it takes. Um, you really have to shoot a lot of things for little to no money. Mm-hmm. And you need to network with people who want to shoot feature films. Like that is obviously when I went to film school, that was the goal that I wanted. That was the end goal. But you know, when I when I got out of school, I I needed money, right? So I couldn't really afford to not work yeah. and, and yeah. volunteer to work on all these small films. Uh, so I kind of just started. You know, I got that job. You know, shooting that TV show, and I was making good money. And it's it's hard to to walk away from that. Sure. That's, absolutely. Um, so I kind of got into that whole loop, so to say. And like once you're in that loop, it's hard to to get out of that loop. Whereas I have other colleagues who are amazing cinematographers and super successful and, and really well known today. They all kind of took like the independent film route. But it also, mm-hmm. it, you know, but it takes you have to do that. But it also takes it takes talent and it takes luck as well because there are some really talented people who did that and they're not famous now. You know. Yeah. So it's it takes um it takes a lot of luck and it takes a huge commitment because my uh, one of my mentors always says, you know, shooting movies uh, sounds really glamorous when you're at the bar, but that's the only time it's glamorous. <laughs> like you're you're away from your family for six to eight months, mm-hmm. you know, working six days a week, sixty hours a day. It's it's absolutely brutal, absolutely brutal. And all the same thing with like the episodic TV shows. It's it's brutal work where you know I doing the documentaries, I get to be like immersed in like these different cultures and uh, the commercials. There are much shorter shoots, so I can go out have a really cool experience uh and then it's over and there's a double-edged sword it's like when it's over i have to go get another job (laughs) so that makes it difficult but um but yeah i think it's luck it's aligning yourself with people who are who are making movies like if you align yourself with a commercial director uh they're going to call you for commercial work because that's what they do but if you align yourself with a feature director they're going to call you for feature work because that's what they do so it's about making those those relationships yeah. And committing yourself to to that lifestyle, I, I it it totally makes sense that you know you're sort of known as somebody that does these three, four, five types of things, and you do them really well. So people call you when they need those things done. Yeah. And there's people that do the movie thing that it's the same way. I'm sure. The flip side is that now that I I've been really lucky and I've um I've been doing great at at what I've you know to commercials and documentaries. Like now I can actually afford to like go shoot a movie. Yeah. <laughs> for for the cheap. That makes so sense. So I'm I'm actually like you know I'm looking to do that right now. I'm looking for the right project to shoot, and I hopefully hopefully I'll get that opportunity because I I can really the movies just let you be creative. You know like I the great thing about the commercials is you have lots of toys like lots of budget, but at the end of the day like you have to you know sell the product, do what the ad agency wants because they know how to they know how to market that project. You know whereas with the films, they have a lot of pressure. They have marketing pressure too, but you can kind of branch out a little bit more. You can get a little more, a little more risky with it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I can understand that. Hey, let me ask you a question I've, I've always wondered about. Um, obviously, you know, it's, it's about how residuals work on the production side. So I'm sure like Scorsese, he gets residuals, right? Whenever he's on any project he's affiliated with. 
Oh yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure. Everyone's deal is different, mm-hmm. uh, but for my deal, it's a buyout, unfortunately. So I, I'm paid as like a as a daily or weekly employee, and that's it. I don't have any ownership. So every time that McDonald's commercial comes on TV that that you shot, it's not like you're touching. Except mm-hmm. once, um, I was in a Febreze commercial. It was a two camera shoot, and we were doing. It was an ad campaign where like. The, the Febreze people would raid people's houses and they would say, show me, show me like the stinkiest thing in your house. And then they would spray it with the Febreze and, uh, and it's like, oh, cool. Like it destroyed the odor. And so it was a two camera shoot. It was like PricewaterhouseCoopers style when we were like barging into people's front doors, you know, <laughs> and, uh, the other camera guy got me in one of the shots. So then because I'm on screen, that's a totally different ball game. Now I, I did get residuals for that one. That was cool. <laughs> now did you, did you have to get a SAG card and all that stuff? I was eligible for one. Uh, so I could have gotten one, but I'm not an actor. So, <laughs> hey, man, you were on the yeah. screen. <laughs> on, I, I, that was, yeah, that's a whole other thing, man, about the whole Twitch thing. Going back to that and and YouTube thing, man. It's it's been a really great experience because I've always been behind the camera my whole life. Yeah. And now that I'm in front of the camera, it it gives me a lot of appreciation for what those people are going through. Mm-hmm. So I, it's again that that's uh, it's really important to to understand all the facets of production so you can you know sympathize with everyone regardless of their their job on the set so being in front of the camera even in, in like the most minuscule form you know on like guru meditation or twitch it's still you're still in front of the camera and still putting yourself out out there in, in public so it's it's a really really good learning experience you, you you've gotten to experience all the sides now because of this you know the, the really editing the cinematography I, I, the acting you've done it all <laughs> yeah yeah I, I was really scared too i was like wow like it's really I was first of all like the first time I got looked into the camera I was like oh my god this is so scary <laughs> and then when I thought about it, I'm like wow I'm putting this on YouTube like anyone could potentially see it they probably oh, yeah. won't but but anyone could see it I was it was really intimidating but then you know everyone like in the in the media community has just been so supportive and 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 I met so many friends with it I was like okay all right this is cool that's awesome <laughs> I can I can do it now and I, I've gotten better too which is cool yeah well I, I, I mean your streams are very popular you know whenever I pop in on Twitch you've always got tons and tons of people from all over the world watching it so. That's amazing. That. Yeah, it's amazing. Thank you. I mean, it's uh, it's so cool. I, like I said, it's just hanging out with friends. That's yeah. the way I look at it. Yeah. Because it's not it's not like that. I'm not like ninja, you know, who gets like a hundred thousand people at a time. That's that's amazing, you know. And I, it's such a small niche. Well, market that, success you know, is always market. relative on the internet, you know. Yeah. It's, yeah. Exactly. And like I've like I said, I've been like super successful with all that stuff because I've made I've made new friends. And we were talking before about the it's how valuable it is to like meet in person, like with WOG, but at mm-hmm. the same time, like the internet is also without the internet, we wouldn't have new members, you know, like our club went from like four or five guys. And now we have like, we get like, you know, anywhere between seven and 14, 15 people at a meeting, but our, our pool is like 30 people now. And it wouldn't, wouldn't have happened if I uh, wasn't putting myself out there on, on YouTube and Twitch. That's, that's so, great. If they, they work together, you know. <laughs> hey, before we wrap this thing up, um, let's circle back around to the Amiga momentarily. Um, sure. Give me your, your all-time top three favorite Amiga games. Always a tough one. I'll go Shadow of the Beast. Another World or Out of This World as mm-hmm. we knew it. TV Sports Football. Wow. I would not have picked those three games for you in a million years. <laughs> That's funny. Well, because I also uh, runners up are like um, 
uh, like we were talking about Marble Madness and Arkanoid, but I don't really, I mean, those are Amiga games, but they're really Atari games, right? They're yeah. Atari yeah, they're uh, ports. arcade games. So they're, they're Amiga ports. But um, Another World is like Ori- Amiga Original, mm-hmm. right? TV Sports Football, Amiga Original. Also loved Earl Weaver Baseball. I love sports games. Um, and, you know, Shadow of the Beast, you know, Amiga Original. And Shadow of the Beast it may not have the best playability, although it's not not as bad as, as like, I remembered it. Like, I was like, oh man, like Shadow of the Beast, that was like the best game ever. But it was really hard. And yeah. You, I never Absolutely. really played it well then. Yeah, <laughs> I never played it well. But it was such like a, a, a technological achievement mm-hmm. between the parallax scrolling and the incredible music that it was almost like a, a demo, right? Yeah, it's a playable <laughs> but, demo. That's exactly yeah. what it is. Yeah. But I've, I, you know, I learned like more recently when I went back to play it that if you start to like memorize it and memorize all the moves, like you can do it. It's yeah. really, really difficult. It's all about awesome. learning the patterns and, and yeah. putting the time in for sure. Yeah. But oh, but the, oh, the one that of course, uh, Lemmings. Yeah. Lemmings, yeah. yeah. So maybe Lemmings a, is up there for me too. Lemmings, Shadow of the Beast. I, I, now, if I were to play it today, like if I were to choose a game to play it today, I would go Lemmings because it has great playability today. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's it withstood the, t- the test of time. And Shadow of the Beast um, is more of a nostalgia. That's your rose-colored glasses. Thing. Yeah, but I still love it. I still think I still think it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Like the graphics it's are still beautiful. Pretty. The music yeah. is still great. Yeah. And like I said, you really can can learn the, the playability of it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Last question. Uh, what do you think, what's your dream for the Amiga, uh, in, in terms of, you know, where, what, what would you like to see coming out forward either hardware wise or, or something software wise? What would you like to see happen in the future for the Amiga as a platform? Wow. That's a tough one. Uh, well, not really that tough. My first dream is I want, I want them to make new keyboards. Um, <laughs> like I know the a 1200 net guys are planning on doing that. Oh, really? Uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, new keyboards because, um, you know, like let's say you buy like a brand new Amiga 500 or 1200 case, mm-hmm. right? And you want to put like a standalone vampire in it when that comes out or mm-hmm. you want to put a Raspberry Pi in it. Mm-hmm. Um, right, no, the way that you do it now is you take an Amiga keyboard and you attach it with like a Kira, right? right? right. Which is cool, but it means there's like a dead Amiga somewhere. And, you know, it. So, you know, sometimes that's fine because Amigas die. It happens. And, uh, you know, if you can, you know, keep it alive by using this keyboard, that's cool. But, like, I'm lucky I don't have any dead Amigas and I don't want to take the keyboard out of one of my Amigas to put it into, like, an emulation machine. Yeah. But a new keyboard, now that would be awesome. Like, if I have a new keyboard that fits an Amiga 1200, 500 case and can attach to um, a Raspberry Pi or a Vampire, that's awesome. And apparently the new keyboards are also going to be, um, they're going to be like USB or Amiga. So you can take them, like if your real Amiga keyboard dies, you can put it, uh, put the new one in it or you can use it like USB as well. So oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. That's, um, that is my, that's my like immediate, immediate dream is <laughs> <laughs> new keyboards. Cause I have these, these cases that I bought and I have like keycaps, but I want to, I need to put it together make it all happen. <laughs> mm. I, I would also love, um, someone to make like remake the blizzard 060 because that's the missing link for my 1200 i've got uh, an 030 an aca uh, an aca 1233n in it which is an amazing amazing piece of gear and i love it like i can do whd load with it it runs like a champion but there's nothing like seeing like the demo scene stuff that requires like you know a blizzard on a real amiga and that's my dream like i would love to have my real amiga be able to do that but the you know the blizzards are 
are old and expensive. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I think if someone made like a new one at a, a reasonable price point, that'd be cool because um, it would be more inexpensive and it would be new. Like, you know, you could still spend a lot of money on a blizzard and it, it could fail because it's an old piece of hardware. That's, you know, that's, you bring up a good point. How much do, how much or how much would one of those, if you were going to buy one on eBay, what would you pay for one of those now? Uh, I've seen them start at like $700. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So starting. And will yeah. that do something that the, the vampire won't do? I mean, if, the vampire is actually, I believe, it's like more powerful. But yeah, because it's an original piece of gear, you can, you know, it, it, it integrates into your Amiga without FPGA or like so stealing its cycles, like the vampire works. I know? see, I see. So yeah. it's, it's really like having, it's the ultimate dream if you want to keep that period, period specific hardware setup is having the exactly. Blizzard card. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. But that's again, and that was the cool thing about the vampire man, Mike. When I saw like an Amiga five hundred playing like the latest and greatest. AGA demo that requires an 060. I'm like, that's pretty cool. And like, when you see that happen in front of you, even though I know the vampire is inside and it's debatable whether it's real Amiga, real, it's real mm-hmm. pure, it's fine. Like, but it was just cool to see that. It was fun. It was really exciting. That's, that, that's awesome. Well, you yeah. never know with all of the great things that literally seem like they come out about once a month, uh, the a new Blizzard card might be in the works. Yeah. I'm also excited for uh, the Tabor board to come out. Because I would love to have a machine that can run Amiga OS 4.1. Right now, I just run it uh, with emulation, mm-hmm. and it's cool to like get get a feel for Amiga OS 4.1. But in order for me to like really get into it or like really get into like Morph OS, like I want to have like a machine dedicated to it. So I'm super excited for like Tabor to come out. That's gonna be that's gonna be a lot of fun. Tell me about that. I don't know what that is. Okay, so um, the guys um, who make uh, the Amiga One, like Trevor Dickinson uh-huh. and his crew, Aeon, mm-hmm. uh, they they make uh, the Amiga One X5000, which is a uh, beautiful machine, but very expensive. Yeah, it's like a tower, uh, the, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. the Tabor board is a smaller board, and it's going to come in, the price point that they're looking at now is either 400 or $450. Oh, okay, much more reasonable. Yeah, because, yeah, you know, like, I mean, look, it's... It's gonna be a toy for me. Mm-hmm. Like it's not. It's not gonna be my main computer. It's gonna be a toy to like mess around with the new OS and have fun and try, try and keep the Amiga alive. And you know that's one avenue to keep the Amiga alive. So like, I could spend four hundred fifty bucks on a toy, mm-hmm. but when you're spending like thousands of dollars on a toy, it's it's harder. Yeah. <laughs> no kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Bill, and it will also bring Amiga to like. I think it will also bring Amiga to a wider audience because if someone else like wants to experiment with Amiga OS, um, it might introduce them. You know, they're more inclined to do it, especially with no Amiga experience. They're like, all right, I got, I can, you know, throw down four hundred fifty bucks on this machine. That's on this that's, board. that's the biggest yeah. thing that stands in the way yeah. of like new. You know, there's that Amiga on the Lake Place that's here mm-hmm. in Michigan that's trying to sell. Uh, they only sell new Amiga hardware, and it seems like that's the biggest. The biggest. Uh, obstacle is just the initial price point. I mean, mm. it's not it's not a it's not something that your typical hobbyist is want to dip his toe in when you're paying you know two grand just to get in the door. Oh yeah, yeah, no, it's it's hard. Yeah, Amiga on the Lake is in upstate New York actually. Oh, I thought they were in. Oh, never mind. I apologize because yeah, they, they were an official sponsor for Megathon, so I should have known uh, better. <laughs> yeah, they're they're on, they're on the Finger Lakes in upstate New York. Okay, have you been mm. up to their shop? No, I, I, that is a trip I've planned them. Oh, it's, awesome. a, it's probably like a four and a half, five hour drive for me so, at least. Yeah. It's but, not, um, it's not like it's right around the bend. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not, I'm not sure how much of a storefront they have. I think it's more of, you know, an, an online office. presence. Yeah. 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 But he's, Aaron's a really nice guy, man. He's really excited about Amiga and he's, he's someone who I don't even think had Amiga back in the day, but he got really fascinated by it and thought it was cool. And I think that's why he specializes in the next generation stuff because he wants to, he's interested in introducing new people to it and the future of it so that's very very cool of him well that's 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 great sometime we'll have to have him on the show because i'm sure he'd be fun to talk to 
Oh yeah, yeah, he's great. Yeah, Aaron's a great guy. Yeah. Anyone who tries to keep the Amiga alive in any way is, is a friend of mine. Whether it's making a new game, making new hardware, you know, anything to keep it relevant and keep it in people's minds, you're a okay with me. However you want to do it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the Vampire guys, like I love it all. Like I want, I want it all. I love Amiga. I want it all. <laughs> I'm right there with you, man. I'm right there with you. <laughs> well, Bill, thank you so much for taking time for being on uh, on Insert Disc Two this week. Uh, we've gone longer than I thought we would. I apologize for that, but uh, it's, I, I just, you know, uh, you're one of the most fascinating figures in the Amiga scene today, and so we're, I was just uh, really glad to have the opportunity to talk to you. Oh man, well, I, that's very kind of you to say. I don't know if I agree, but if I'm the most fascinating, <laughs> but that's that's very kind of you. But I would, and I want to say like thank you to you guys because. Uh, your Amigathon was absolutely incredible. And I mean, how cool is it? Like a lot of people are like, oh, video games, oh, like old computers. Like, are you crazy? I like, guess just some like weird, silly hobby. But like, look what you guys did, man. You guys raised like a ton of money and you helped real kids who needed help. Like, how awesome is that? And it all happened because of the love of this hobby. So like, I have like the utmost respect for you guys and what you did. Like doing, you know, turning your hobby into something that helps real people in need is phenomenal like it's blows my mind that's super generous of you guys and man i just it makes like it makes my heart glow that's that someone in the media community did that so thank you well you know we we it was a pleasure and uh amigathon is always a lot of fun and so i'm just glad that we had so many people that you know so many kind people in the media community that turned out and donated or sponsored and uh, or just hung out with us in the chat for 24 hours so it was a real fun time Awesome. Awesome. Thanks. I can't wait for the next one. Yeah. Then, it's about 360 days away. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, that'll give you plenty of time to rest up because a 24 hour stream is no joke. Oh I never even gosh. tried one. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's, it's so good. All right, Bill. Well, um, why don't you plug all your stuff real quick before you go? Sure. Sure. Okay. So, uh, I'm uh, Amiga Bill uh, over on YouTube. We are The Guru Meditation, youtube.com slash The Guru Meditation. On Facebook, we are facebook.com slash The Guru Meditation. Twitter, we're at The Guru Meditate. On Twitch, the live streaming service where I stream about once a week on my own, I'm not with my buddy Anthony, is twitch.tv slash Amiga Bill. Uh, we're also on Google Plus, if anyone else is out there on Google Plus. Um, I, we're the Guru Meditation, I think. <laughs> but Google Plus is a cool place. Uh, I feel bad I haven't given it enough love lately, but yeah, we're on Google Plus as well. And of course, uh, the Westchester Amiga User Group, we meet on the first Thursday of every month in White Plains, New York, which is about 35 minutes north of New York City. You know, everyone's welcome. Uh, if you are interested in coming to the group, uh, please get in touch with me. We have a, a, a Google group where we, we chat and decide if we actually are going to meet because, you know, sometimes there's inclement weather, especially in the wintertime. So, like, we'll postpone a meeting. We'll skip we'll skip a month. Or, you know, if I can't make it. Well, for example, this month coming up, we have uh, the Apollo team is coming again to show the latest vampire. So, I want to do that um, in, a, in a space where we can have the real Amiga set up. So, I'm going to postpone it till. So Saturday, from Thursday to Saturday. So it's, it's a little bit of a moving target. So okay. if you're interested in coming, please follow me on social media and get in contact with me personally, and I'll get you uh, into into the group to make sure that you, you don't show up on a Thursday night at the gallery all by yourself. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Well, thanks again, Bill. Uh, that's all for this week's Insert Disc 2. We will see you next time. Adios. <laughs>